Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello again and welcome back uh, to this third now uh, podcast episode on intersecting vulnerabilities in humanitarian disasters. My name is Ekaterina Zhukova. I'm a researcher at Lund University in Sweden. And this podcast initiative is supported by the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. The abbreviation is NCHS. And it is also co-organized together with my colleague, Antonio De Lauri, research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway, and also director of NCHS. And it's my pleasure today to host uh, Andrew Littlejohn, who is assistant professor at the Institute of Cultural Anthropology and Development Sociology at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Andrew is a social cultural anthropologist who focuses on political ecology, heritage and reconstruction after humanitarian disasters. And his field site is Japan. A warm welcome to you, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. So the question that I always ask is this. How have you started doing research on humanitarian disasters? That's a good question, because I think for many of us, um, I know some people go into the study of humanitarian disasters with a particular goal in mind, goal of studying it. But for many of us, disasters happen in places that we are already engaged with in one form or another, and we end up pivoting what we're doing to study the aftermath, the consequences of those events. And that's very much what happened to me. I didn't go into my PhD studies intending to work on a disaster. I went on my PhD studies intending to study the fishing industry in the northeast of Japan. Uh, And as many of your listeners will know, in 2011, the year that I started my PhD, that same northeast coastline was struck by a tsunami uh, which followed an undersea megathrust earthquake that's in the top five most powerful earthquakes uh, ever to occur. Mm -hmm. Uh, An earthquake um, so strong that it measurably slowed uh, the uh, spin of the earth for a period of time. Mm So the areas that I had been planning already to do field research on a completely different topic um, were destroyed almost completely. And at that stage, as a young PhD student, right, someone just uh, starting out in research, I had two choices. I had the choice of taking my existing topic and looking to study it somewhere else, or of pivoting and shifting towards the study of this disaster, its consequences, its aftermath. And that's what I chose to do instead. So I pivoted Mm -hmm. towards this um, and redirected myself towards the study of humanitarian disasters, specifically the reconstruction process following the tsunami um, and, of course, nuclear meltdown that occurred uh, in these areas. 
And so it was very much a case of disasters happen. And sometimes um, we have, and we have to, in many different ways, um, live with their consequences. And in my case, um, one of those consequences was a pivot away from my previous interests um, towards the study of reconstruction, um, social reconstruction, cultural reconstruction, including the question of what one does with heritage, how heritage is affected by disasters, um, environmental reconstruction, um, and more broadly, uh, the politics of securing areas against future events, um, socially, culturally, materially. So mm -hmm. that's how I came to this topic. Right. And the question that comes to my mind now, what was the moment, if you remember, where you actually realized, this is what I'm going to study. It's not uh, fish, it's the disaster. Do you remember the moment? I, I remember exactly the moment. Um, in the anthropology of Japan, there's a very well-known um, um, professor called David Slater, a very important figure within uh, the Japanese anthropology world. And he was visiting Harvard where I was doing my PhD to give a talk. And he and I met for coffee and uh, I was talking to him about this problem and saying, well, I wanted to do research on the fishing industry. The fishing industry in these areas is wiped out. These whole areas are wiped out. What should I do? And he said, you must study the recovery and reconstruction in these areas, including of the people who worked in the fishing industry. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of conversation with him was the real trigger that's, that led me to go, okay, this is a, a pivotal moment, a turning point, a moment where Japan changes, the world changes, because this event, of course, had global cascade effects. Um, mm -hmm. Among other things, it was one of the events that triggered the um, shift away from nuclear energy in Germany, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So global pivotal moment and a moment in him in a cafe in Harvard talking about this where I go, I realized, okay, I have to. I have to, to change and make this shift. And then this was before I had visited the areas in question. And of course, when I began to visit the areas, began to do field work and began to become very personally invested in the um, recovery of communities, in the lives of people, that of course took it to a whole different place. But before I had made that first journey, it was this moment talking with someone who was also very personally invested. He had been leading teams of volunteers from Tokyo, student volunteers to go to the disaster regions, to go to the areas and seeing firsthand their impact, seeing firsthand the suffering and the struggles, but also the, um, you know, the incredible um, work being done by people who had survived the tsunami to rebuild. Um, and he um, said, this is an important thing to do work on, to these are important, it's important people to be working with. And that was one of the big triggers for me before I had myself visited the areas. Mm -hmm. And this conversation um, might have created certain expectations for you as a researcher. And I'm wondering when you went to Japan, to the field, to what extent your expectations were exactly what you saw or to what extent actually you realized, no, I have no idea about that. I see something completely different. I think nothing prepares you for the experience of going into a, um, an area that has been struck by a significant humanitarian catastrophe. Um, I remember very vividly 
um, my very first journey into the areas, um, which due to the destruction of the local railway system, they put in place a bus network. So I arrived in the area via bus from uh, Sendai, which is the capital city of um, Miyagi Prefecture, the one of the large north, uh, northern Japanese prefectures and one of the largest cities in the northeast of Japan. Mm. So I arrived by bus and for the first couple of hours of the bus journey, you're driving through what you might call normal rural villages, towns. Uh, and then at a certain point, you begin to notice a profound change in the landscape, right? You begin to realize that um, the trees lining the rivers are dead because of which later you discover is due to due to excessive um, uh, salt in the soil deposited by the tsunami. And so you begin to see dead trees and you begin to see kind of broken metal and you begin to see piles um, of um, uh, debris. And then at a later stage, you begin to see um, the foundations that use of what used to be houses and gradually it accumulates and accumulates and then you arrive in places that are um, landscapes of devastation and absolutely nothing prepares you for that absolutely mm -hmm. nothing even photographs that you've seen in newspapers videos that you've seen nothing prepares you for that and of course nothing prepares you for beginning to dialogue with talk to volunteer with work alongside people who have lost enormous amounts of in, in the set well people who have lost both personal um things people who have lost families people who have lost homes people who've lost but also people who have su suffered significant cultural losses people who've seen their areas that they've grown up in been reduced to debris um, nothing prepares you for um, beginning to um, learn something, however tenuous of that experience, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say that um, expectations weren't really a factor for me because it was really a, a process of discovery and of trying to grasp something of the experiences of the people that I was interacting with, working alongside, working with, volunteering with. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated how you have described what you saw, that you saw the dead trees, the pieces of metal, and then the relationship people had with those. There was a loss. So I would like to ask about the concepts. You also mentioned when you had the conversation with the professor in Harvard, they saw the reconstruction and heritage. When have you started to verbalize or articulate what you have seen through these concepts? Have you thought about them also before with expectations or have they emerged later on? They emerged later on. So heritage wasn't initially a focus. Heritage came later. So mm -hmm. heritage was something that emerged in dialogue with what I was seeing in the field, particularly with what I was seeing um, in terms of the struggles people had to reconstruct cultural practices heritage practices mm -hmm. and also the and the way in which sometimes those struggles um, were not always helped by the particular discourse of heritage that was coming from Japanese government agencies mm -hmm. now Japanese government agencies put a lot of effort and funding into trying to resurrect um, heritage practices um, and that has to be acknowledged but there's a off there was a, a, a gap right, in the way that heritage was being conceived at certain levels, including in academia, and what was actually needed on the ground. Mm 
Um, and that gap is something I, I, I think about and I write about in, um, in the work that I've published on this. But, but so that was very much something emergent, something that came of being doing, working alongside people and seeing the kind of um, struggles to reconstruct their cultural lives um, in dialogue with official programs, agencies, etc. And the same was true of reconstruction. So reconstruction is uh, obviously a common English word in the study of humanitarian catastrophes. But my particular way of thinking about and focusing on reconstruction came about through the huge emphasis put in Japanese, um, um, the Japanese post-disaster context on what's called fukko, which would be a Japanese word roughly similar to um, reconstruction or building back better. It has a meaning somewhere related to those two concepts. And so this enormous energy that people were putting into conceptualizing, debating, discussing, and trying to put into practice different ideas of fukko, of what it means to reconstruct, to build something that is not just what was there before, but is something that was better. The word to build back what was there before is fukku, it's a different word. Mm -hmm. um, thinking with that, again, was what led me to conceptualize um, reconstruction in particular ways. And so all of my work in that sense builds on what I encountered in the field, on the ground, and the different ways in which people were negotiating and struggling with that. Because as an anthropologist, that's very much my process, right? It's a process of what we like to call grounded theory, of letting the, um, the field site, the encounters, the data shape the concept, the concepts you work with, provide the conceptual framework rather than starting from a particular conceptual framework. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you mentioned yourself, you're an anthropologist. And one question I would like to ask, um, link into that, the role of anthropology in understanding disasters in different places of the world. How would you, um, what would you say the role of the anthropology plays in addition to that concepts emerge actually from the field rather than uh, imposed in advance? So I think anthropology has an enormous role to play. And not only anthropology, but other, um, what I'm going to call fieldwork-oriented social sciences, they don't only have to be qualitative because mm -hmm. there's been some wonderful fieldwork done by more quantitatively oriented researchers. But the key thing about anthropology is that it emphasizes ethnography fieldwork. And this has a huge role to play because one of the major problems in post-disaster reconstruction is the imposition of top-down, often mobile solutions, right? The idea that there can be a kind of portable solution that you can just apply in all sorts of different places and contexts. And this rarely works. And we see again and again and again a need for more culturally uh, sensitive, context-specific responses. Mm -hmm. So why does anthropology, or more specifically anthropological methods, right, fieldwork-based methods, qualitative, yes, but in dialogue also with quantitative um, grounded methods. Why, why are these important? They're important because they help us to understand the particular social, cultural circumstances of the sites we're dealing with, which shape the kinds of interventions that are necessary, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very often the case, very often the case that um, aid workers, however, um, however um, um, uh, sincere in their desire to help, often make 
mistakes often exacerbate problems on the ground because they do not understand those social, cultural dynamics of the circumstances they're going into. Mm -hmm. So anthropology is all based around trying to understand the local, culturally specific contexts, trying to understand and think from those contexts on the ground from the very beginning and to consider what a, a, an appropriate humanitarian response that builds upwards from those rather, uh, would be, rather than comes down, is imposed based on ideas perhaps that have been developed in a different context and are then simply being applied across as if they are mobile, as if they can work in all sorts of different scenarios, cultural, social, etc. Mm -hmm. So this for me is the huge role anthropology has to play. It, it allows us to take a different starting point, allows us to say, let's learn about this, this site, these social groups, these cultural ideas, before we begin to impose particular solutions on them. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that's often raised in, in uh, pushback against that is the need for speed, because we all know that in the aftermath of a humanitarian catastrophe, there are a lot of things that are needed very quickly, food, shelter, medicine, etc. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely the case that some aspects of recovery need to be done quickly, even if that sometimes means they are done in ways that are culturally insensitive or end up causing problems um, mm -hmm. in particular social situations. Mm -hmm. But it's not always the case, because it is often the case that when you try and impose solutions without taking into account the cultural context, even if you say, what's well, because we need to do it quickly, you actually end up doing it more slowly because you create friction with communities and you create friction between communities and that friction leads to pushback, leads to blowback, which draws out the process. And so you can spend five, six, seven years debating how to re re reconstruct an area because you didn't start from this more ground up process. Whereas if you had, it might've been slower at the beginning. It might've taken you a couple of years to put into pr process what into place what you needed to do. But in the longer scheme of things, it would have actually been quicker. And so sometimes this need for speed that leads people to say, no, no, we need to go in straight away with an agenda that we've set in advance actually ends up producing a slower response. Mm -hmm. So anthropology, but also other fieldwork oriented uh, disciplines can really help us to have better humanitarian responses because it helps us to understand what is needed in a particular social and cultural context. And we may not know that in advance. That's the critical thing. We do not necessarily understand that in advance. And then to create solutions that are tailored to that context, right, rather than imposing solutions from other ones. And that's mm -hmm. the real advantage for me of anthropological research in these kinds of scenarios. Um, and why we need more of what David Slater, who I've already mentioned, mm -hmm. anthropologist of Japan, calls urgent ethnography in uh, post-catastrophe situations. Ethnographic methods conducted urgently, designed to feed into a humanitarian response that is culturally sensitive, that is socially sensitive, that does try and build from the ground up, that does try and leverage the already existing knowledge, capacities, practices, ideas of survivors themselves, rather than treating them as passive objects to be rescued or etc. I have also noticed with the concept of reconstruction, there is um, a prefix post that is used, post-disaster reconstruction. And I would like to ask you to what extent prefix is actually helpful 
Do we need prefix pre-disaster, disaster, post-disaster? Post or maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's definitely more complicated than that, um, in part because, um, well, firstly, what we call the post-disaster uh, stage um, is actually often the, is also the pre-disaster stage because it's the pre of the next disaster. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it also depends on how you understand what the underlying causes of a disaster are, because there's a tendency to think of disasters as fundamentally geophysical occurrences. For example, if we talk about so-called natural disasters, right, mm -hmm. as opposed to um, war or mm -hmm. um, other kind of um, humanitarian catastrophes. But of course, in many cases, the geophysical event um, only becomes catastrophic because of the way it interacts with things like long-standing patterns of inappropriate development. Mm -hmm. So if we take something like um, um, the catastrophic flo uh, flooding in uh, Houston, Texas um, several years ago, mm -hmm. um, of course, the proximate trigger was the hurricane, but the, uh, the hurricane only caused catastrophic flooding because of decades of deregulation of development and so as such, we're not really in it. There's not really a pre or post catastrophe. The catastrophe is an ongoing one. It's that long-term inappropriate planning that creates um, uh, non-porous ground surfaces that cannot absorb heavy rainfall that leads to catastrophic flooding, right? Mm -hmm. So there's many ways in which thinking of a catastrophe as a singular event in time with a pre and a post is overly simplistic, partly because what is the post for one situation is the pre of another. Mm -hmm. um, and partly because sometimes the catastrophe itself, the triggering uh, cause, the event, is actually not a singular happening in space and time, but a longer term process, such as the inappropriate development leading people to um, situate houses in floodplains, leading people to construct schools in tsunami prone areas. Uh, leading people to concrete over previously porous surfaces, leading people to drain marshlands, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And leading to that, there is another mobile concept. We were talking about mobile uh, solutions, which is a disaster vulnerability. So I would like to ask you, how would you define disaster vulnerability from the ground in Japan? What will it be? So vulnerability is an interesting concept because there's two ways really of thinking about vulnerability and I lean more one way than the other. One of the ways of thinking about vulnerability is to see, and this is very common, is to see vulnerability as a characteristic of a place or a population. So for example, you say they're vulnerable because they are poor or because um, in countries with significant histories of, uh, and presence of racial discrimination, uh, you're vulnerable if you belong to an ethnic minority, for example. Mm. And this kind of way of thinking about vulnerability is very common, but there are also people who push back against it. Um, the anthropology AJ Fass uh, has written about this recently, um, talking about how this way of talking about vulnerability can become problematic when it leads to seeing the causes of vulnerability as somehow something that is wrong with people, as opposed to something that's wrong with institutions mm -hmm. that create that vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is more the way I lean. Right. What what is it that makes our social systems vulnerable to discriminating against people on the basis of race? 
as opposed to what makes people vulnerable because they belong to a stigmatized group. And it's that flip in that way of thinking about vulnerability is important because it locates responsibility not in people themselves. It doesn't blame the victims, but it keeps responsibility where it should be, which is in the societal institutions, systems that produce the vulnerability of particular places or people. Mm-hmm. So this for me is how I have, I'm trying to move towards thinking about vulnerability, towards asking um, how social systems, institutions, processes are vulnerable to discriminating against people, are vulnerable to promoting inappropriate development in particular areas, are vulnerable to uh, not listening to the voices of the uh, poorer or more marginalized members of society, as opposed to focusing on that, uh, those uh, members of society as somehow um, uh, natural, natural victims. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say that uh, they are not discriminated against, they are, absolutely, but it's to folk, keep the focus on the, um, the institutions, the systems, the processes that produce that discrimination and are thus ultimately responsible for it and are what need to change, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the way I look at vulnerability. Like I said, this has been written about recently um, in a great article called Is Vulnerability an Outdated Concept? Mm-hmm. I advise everyone to go and read it. Uh, It's not arguing arguing it's an outdated concept because people aren't vulnerable, but it's arguing for a shift in how we think about vulnerability. Because Mm -hmm. if we continue to see vulnerability as a property of people and places, we can sometimes legitimize damaging interventions by the same institutions that are responsible for creating inappropriate development, for example. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is change those institutions, change their logics, change um, the systems that create um, catastrophes for some certain people more than others. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes me think also of the concept of intersectionality because usually it also, the focus goes to the people and the group, whether it's a particular gender or race or ethnicity. So I would like you also to maybe say a few words within the focus shift. How would you see disaster uh, intersectionality working in disaster context in Japan? Yeah, so this is, of course, the shift that I'm talking about, and it's very recent um, that people have been talking about, very recently that people have been talking about this. Um, Of course, it's intersectionality is something that is much talked about in this previous framework, like you say, right, where we talk more about vulnerability as a property of Mm -hmm. particular uh, discriminated groups. And of course, we know that discrimination doesn't just occur on the basis of um, a single kind of characteristic, right? It's like if you are uh, African-American, but also a woman, but also gay, for example, mm-hmm. then your vulnerability um, in this sense is compounded, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and so there's a very strong and powerful need to think about intersectionality, to think about the way in which um, different Um, forms of categorization and identification and different kinds of experiences, experiences as as transgender, as as, uh, African-American, etc., compound each other to produce vulnerabilities that are more than the sum of their parts. But at the same time, given the need for this shift, this paradigm shift in how we think about vulnerability, again, um, I think it comes back to thinking about the ways in which institutions, systems, processes, um, produce intersectional forms of discrimination, right? 
Um, but it's still an ongoing area uh, and uh, one that uh, ongoing area of debate and one that I'm hoping to think a lot more about and read a lot more about. Uh, as we and I appreciate very much uh, for bringing this um, debate here into our conversation. And now I would like to ask you back to you and your history uh, of uh, exploration and uh, self-search as well as an anthropologist. If you go back uh, to all the work you have done, what do you think was the most important, uh, I can't say I like this word finding, but as a researcher that you have actually realized for yourself and for the society, what was the most dis important discovery for you? Yeah, so I would say that one of the most important things I have seen in spending mm -hmm. time working alongside people, trying to reconstruct their homes, places, social lives, communal lives in Northeastern Japan, very much comes back to this question of how interventions designed to make people safer can actually sometimes harm them. Mm -hmm. For me, this is one of the key things, and it's something that we really need to understand um, um, as people concerned about having better humanitarian interventions. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've worked on has been resistance among people who survived um, the tsunami to building new protective infrastructures like seawalls in the disaster struck. Mm -hmm areas. And for me, this was a real puzzle. Why would people who had um, seen people die, who had lost family members, who had lost their homes, mm -hmm. resist the construction of new dikes, seawalls, infrastructures that should make them safer against future tsunamis, for example? Now, the should make them safer bit is actually controversial. There's some good reason to think that seawalls do not make people safer. Um, and this is one of the things that I discovered by spending time among these people, that for many of them, they experience seawalls as actually creating a, a moral hazard. Um, you can't necessarily see the sea when you're behind a 13 meter wall. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways in which fishermen have long been able to anticipate a tsunami coming is by the way in which the tide draws out and you begin to see the ocean floor exposed as a wave approaches. Mm -hmm. So you spend time among people and you learn that, okay, so there's maybe ways in which not being able to see the sea actually can be more dangerous because it makes you think you don't see the signs of danger coming. And in mm -hmm. fact, many people didn't evacuate because they thought they were safe because of the seawall, because they couldn't see the tide pulling out. And so mm -hmm. you can have this kind of moral hazard that seawalls create. Mm -hmm. But I also this would find that on a cultural level, seawalls were profoundly damaging. They damaged people's relationships with the sea that are kind of a, important parts of local religious practice, for example. Uh, and which the cycle of kind of the um, what you might call hydrological cycles in these areas by which um, having a kind of more porous boundary in which water can flow across the land sea interface is very important for their livelihoods as coastal fisher people, aquaculturalists dependent on flows of water bringing nutrients from the inland mountains into the water. Mm. So seawalls end up being potentially dangerous because they impede the ways in which people know and anticipate changes in their environment. Mm -hmm. They end up being culturally damaging because of these religious dependencies um, on access to the water. And they end up being damaging to livelihoods because of the ways in which they alter the local ecologies. And all of this I found through spending time with people in the disaster regions, working alongside them, talking with them, mm -hmm. 
And they throw into sharp relief how a national level program designed to make people safer actually ends up causing profound damage to those people's lives, such that, um, as one fisherman told me, if they build this wall, I'm leaving and not coming back. And ultimately, I think this is the perverse trajectory of reconstruction in Japan, where these enormous, I mean, billions of, of dollars are being spent on building these safety infrastructures. Um, and 10, 20, 30 years from now, the areas will probably be ghost towns. So um, the most important thing for me then, this most important thing I saw working alongside people in the disaster regions was how when interventions, when humanitarian interventions are conceived and planned at high levels without any knowledge, understanding or respect for the social and cultural and ecological life worlds of the people you're trying to help, you end up harming those people and you end up splitting, dividing communities, you end up causing frictions, you end up causing people to leave. And so, again, it feeds back into this point I said at the beginning, that we need to move away from thinking about humanitarian aid as a kind of one-size-fits-all solution where we have our portable things that we bring into an area and really think about it as a bottom-up process where we begin with a kind of urgent ethnography and urgent investigation to really understand the worlds of the people we are trying to help before we begin dictating how their worlds should be reconstructed. So would urgent ethnography be something you are working on now? Or in a more specific language, what is it that occupies your mind today? Well, I'm working on a few things at the moment. Uh, mm -hmm. The first is I'm, I'm working on a book manuscript, um, mm -hmm. which brings together the research I've been doing in the northeast of Japan, um, that manuscript builds on work that I've published in journals such as American Ethnologist, where I've published about this. Um, and I was recently very fortunate to receive a Wenner-Gren uh, Hunt Fellowship um, to uh, help with the writing of this. So I'm working on finishing this book manuscript. And then I'm also looking ahead towards future projects um, on the politics of climate change adaptation. This is where I'm moving towards in Japan, uh, the Netherlands and the United States, and particularly looking at um, different uh, visions for um, how we can build new sort of nature-based or green infrastructures to protect coastlines. So very much uh, related to the work I've been doing already in that sense, and also related to the politics of heritage, because one of the things we see um, uh, struggles over, for example, if you look at the United States, you see struggles between state governments and Native American groups in coastal areas over what to protect, right? Do you construct infrastructures that will protect only cities or gas fields? Or do you construct infrastructures that will protect tribal lands with uh, deep histories of inhabitation and with incredibly important um, roles uh, within the cultural lives of Native American groups? So I'm shifting more towards then um, looking at the politics of climate change adaptation specifically as it relates to infrastructure, culture, heritage in coastal areas um, and uh, developing grant applications um, that uh, will hopefully allow uh, me to do some of this, uh, some of this work. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned comparative aspect now because we have US, the Netherlands and Japan. Yes. And I would like to ask you, how do you think comparing will help 
to advance all the knowledge that you have uh, produced already uh, with the field in Japan? Yeah, so comparison, I think, is helpful because it helps us to begin thinking beyond the specifics of the case site and to start questioning whether more global trends or phenomenon are emerging, right? So one of the things um, that we definitely see if we look across different sites is that there are real tensions because of the ways in which um, perhaps what you might call local understandings of uh, this, uh, the social contract, the responsibilities between states and citizens are now being challenged by the need to create global institutions, global responses to climate change, which is after all a transnational problem, right? Mm. So this is a phenomenon that is happening in multiple different countries, but it's happening in slightly different ways according to those local variations in histories of state-citizen relations and ideas about the social contract, etc. And so comparison called comparative ethnography allows us to attend both to the general and the particular. We don't have to pick either, right? We can look at how particular global trends or tensions are emerging, but we can ground our understanding of those trends in their specific local forms that they're taking and develop an understanding then of the spectrum of possibilities for how they can be expressed or articulated in particular places. Mm -hmm. So by developing a comparative ethnographic project, the aim is to begin teasing out simultaneously the particular and the general, and to think about how general globalized trends are emerging from phenomena occurring in particular places. So that's mm -hmm. the concept behind the comparison. Hopefully it'll work. Have to wait and see. Yes, you have to try. <laughs> and the last question I really would like to ask you, since now you are also moving into the climate change um, that, uh, you know, uh, it's every day on the news and everywhere and uh, we are all worried. And climate humanitarianism is yet another concept that emerged. So I would like to ask you if you were to talk to those people who design policies and aid toolkits and approaches to places that you can again transport, copy and paste, what would you say to them? I would say again, that, and again, I, I want to emphasize I'm not criticizing people who are trying to develop these toolkits. Mm -hmm. They're incredibly important. But I would say that we have to always be careful about assuming that we can have a mobile policy toolkit practice that we can transplant to different places without taking into account the specific social, cultural contexts, the specific needs of the people in those areas, which we can never really know without going to them themselves. So my challenge would always be to say, go to the places, learn about the people, collaborate with local communities. Don't believe in advance that you know what is best for them, right? It should always be a dialogic process. Um, any form of humanitarian work or humanitarian aid should always be a dialogic process in which the agency of the people you're working with is as important as your own. And so I would say this applies equally to climate change effects where, again, the, not only is it that the different ways in which climate change are going to impact people vary tremendously according to local ecologies, environments, histories of their habitation, but it's also that the people working in these areas often have knowledge that we can learn from, right, if we are willing to work in dialogue with them whether it be indigenous populations, for example, or others, people have tremendous environmental knowledge. And so again, let's start with the assumption that the goal is to create 
collaborations, alliances, to work with and to learn from people being affected by climate change, rather than to see ourselves as saviors riding in with our portable toolkits and fixing things. This would be the same uh, in climate humanitarianism as it is in other kinds of post-disaster post mm. or post-conflict situations. Mm. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing your insights with me and with our listeners today. I would like to remind that our precious guest today was Andrew Littlejohn, Assistant Professor at the Institute of Cultural Anthropology and Development Sociology at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And if you'd like to know more about humanitarian disasters or humanitarian crisis in general, just visit our website. It's www.humanitarianstudies.no and we will be back. Bye.